and I just heard a secret which I want to share with you <laughs> so it won't be so secret. Today is Sean's birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Sean. Happy birthday to you and many more. <laughs> yeah. See, secrets don't last too long at Spirit Rock. <laughs> yeah, so tonight the talk is going to be called The Secret Teachings because, as I said, coming here has made me a little bit nostalgic and I was thinking back to how it was when I started practice, lo, these many years ago, some 30 years ago, almost 35 years ago, in the late 70s, there was no spirit rock. There was hardly any retreats. There were hardly any teachers. There were no books. There was no online anything that was, wasn't even thought about. And so the only way to hear the Dharma, which is what we hear when we come to Spirit Rock, the only way to learn was to go on a retreat with whoever was around. And there was a certain advantage to that because none of us had too many ideas about what was going to happen or what to expect or what we would get out of it. You know, I mean, I didn't, we were more in it for the adventure of it and for the, the sense that we'd, we'd done a few other things. We'd done some drugs. <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd experimented with a lot of different things, but we had no idea what would happen when we went on retreat and stayed in silence in a continuous fashion for some days. I mean, I thought maybe my head would explode or something. I had no idea what would happen. We'd all be psychotic or what? So there was a real sense of adventure about what we were doing. My first retreat was with a, a Zen master named Sasaki Roshi. Anybody here know Sasaki Roshi or know who he is? Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it was, I will never forget the experience. It was sitting with this very traditional, very fierce, uh, old, old, you know, traditional Zen master. He was like the, if you were going to do Hollywood casting of a traditional Zen master, you would pick him. Terrifying person, terrifying, until he smiled and then you fell in love. I mean, he was, he was quite a character and I had no understanding whatsoever of what I was to do uh, in this retreat. They studied koans. Koans are questions that cannot be answered by your, by your mind, by your analytic, rational, reasonable, everyday mind. 
they're paradoxical, and they require uh, an answer from, from uh, kind of your right brain, I guess you could say, creative responses. Anyway, I went on this retreat because a friend of mine said, oh, let's go, we'll have a good time. <laughs> what did I know? Her friend Leonard Cohen had told her about it, so it's, I thought, well, if Leonard Cohen's doing it, I want to do it. So we went, and it was very rigorous, very, very, very rigorous beyond anything. I mean, I ended up calling it Marine Zen Boot Camp. Zen Boot Camp, it was that hard, getting up at 3 in the morning and never having a break, always with the group, sitting many hours during the day in a very strict posture, and then having to go and talk to uh, Sasaki Roshi four times a day. I had to meet this man, and he would test me with his koan, and I would fail four times a day. We could just count, okay, let's see how, you know, I, I knew I would fail because I had no idea what was expected of me. So you rush into this little room where he's sitting in his glorious robes, you, he, and he says, the koan, the koan was, um, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? Now, if I said that to any of you, what would you respond? <laughs> Anybody have anything that they could come up with? I had no, I, I think my first response was, I beg your pardon. <laughs> you know, it was like, what in the world is this? So anyway, I got very used to failing, but I, for some reason, didn't want to give up. They suggested halfway through the week that I give up and go home, but I, I was determined to, you know, my friend was staying, I was going to stay, I wanted to talk to Leonard about it, so I stayed. And then I, after that experience, I went on to a Tibetan teacher. And again, there was a sense of, I mean, I knew there was something there. Even with Suzaki Roshi, I knew that there was something of great import. I just didn't know what it was. And then with the Tibetan teacher, it was a bit of the same. I could see this man was brimming with compassion and care and he really, his heart was in it, you know, he really wanted us to learn. And, and yet I, I didn't, again, have a clue why we were doing the practices we were doing, the chanting. Uh, he would speak, his English wasn't the best, but, you know, he would speak and he would tell us things and wonderful stories. And, and then that we would be sitting in a room with many of these these kinds of tankas, they're called tankas, these paintings of gods and goddesses. And Anyway, through these two experiences, first in the Zen tradition, then in the Tibetan tradition, somewhere in there I got this idea that there was some kind of secret teaching and that one day, if I was lucky or if I practiced well, that I would be tapped on the shoulder and somebody would take me around to the back of the temple and, you know, I would be given, I'd be the whispered in the ear some kind of secret, wonderful thing that would change my life. That was what I sort of fantasized about. 
Well, of course, that never happened. And it was, it became a teaching for me in the sense that over the time that I practiced and then finally found Western teachers, I found Joseph Goldstein, I found Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and I knew I had come to the right, finally I'd found my tradition because they were, they spoke English, <laughs> they made things sensible, I could understand why I was sitting on the cushion, you know, the first instruction that I heard Joseph give that I felt like, oh, I can follow this. In the Zen tradition, I had no, I didn't, there was nothing I could do. You know, it was just, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? That didn't take me very far. So when Joseph said, follow your breath, I thought, hooray, I'm home. I can do this. I can actually do this. And so it was a door opening. And in that door opening, and over a long period of time, I slowly began to realize that, yes, there are secret teachings. The Dharma is subtle and refined and hard to see sometimes. But they're not being, nobody's keeping them from you or from any of us. The truth is we keep them, we keep the secret teachings from ourselves, from our own blindness, our own kind of not, our inability to see clearly. And that is what practice is meant to alleviate, is this inability to see clearly. So we call it insight meditation. Insight meditation is what we teach here. And insight meditation is about changing our perception, actually changing our perception so that we're not fooled by the appearance of things. We see things more clearly. We understand what's actually going on. We see what we did not see before, and that makes a world of difference. In the tradition, um, what we're all up against, and there, there's just no way out of it, and it's not personal, we're up against what is called delusion or ignorance. And ignorance is portrayed visually as, a, as an old woman who's blind who's tottering around, unable to see, and uncertain because she can't see, she's uncertain about everything. That's sort of the visual image of the condition that we're all in when we start practice. And it's not personal. It's just the part of the human uh, condition. So over, the, over time, I began to see, yes, the teachings are, there are teachings that are, you could call self-secret. We keep them secret from ourselves. We don't see clearly because our perception is obscured. 
We don't see things as they are truly. What do we see? We see what we want. We see what we like. We see what we don't want. What we want to get rid of. This is how it is. So in our practice of insight, we get to actually begin to see more clearly. So I'll tell you a story. And maybe some of you have heard this story before. It's a, it's well, it's a well-worn story. It's the story of, the, of a farmer with a horse and a son. One day the horse ran away and all the neighbors were, oh, how unfortunate. Your horse ran away. The farmer says, maybe. In a little while, the horse returned, bringing with it another horse. He had found a mate. The neighbors were amazed, and they said, Oh, how fortunate. Now you have two horses. And the farmer says, Maybe. The son decided to train the new horse, and in breaking in the new horse, he broke his leg. Once again, the neighbors are saying, oh, how unfortunate, your son broke his leg. The farmer says, maybe. Then the army recruiter comes looking for healthy young men to recruit into the army. And because the son had broke his leg, he wasn't a candidate. The neighbors all said, oh, wow, how fortunate is that? And the farmer says, maybe. So this goes on and on. Does it sound at all familiar to any of you? Can you relate to this kind of thing? So this is uh, an example of what begins to wake up in us, just like the farmer. While his neighbors were in touch with the immediate gain or loss of the situation, the farmer was in touch with something less obvious, more hidden. What was it? What was the farmer in touch with? Impermanence. Impermanence. Yes, he was in touch with some truth about how things change. And another aspect of that is how we're not always in charge of how things change. We are at the effect of uncontrollable changes, not subject to our will. The changes that we can observe in ourselves, in our world. They're not about many of them, not all of them, but they're not necessarily about, do they consult you? You know, does, it, does the change happening in your life say, is it, is it okay with you if things change? No, 
It changes whether you're ready for it or not. It changes. They're not about me. They're not going to be about satisfying our personal agendas. So we can see that this, in this instance, the secret teaching is impermanence. It's a universal law. It's universal. It touches all of our lives. None of us can hide from it or prevent it or be in charge of it. This is like one of the secret teachings. It's not the only secret teachings, but it's the one that in some ways is the most obvious one in our world, which we somehow keep overlooking. We don't want to see it. There's a wonderful teacher, Bhante Gunaratana. He's a Sri Lankan monk who uh, has taught here sometimes at Spirit Rock. And I want to read you something he says about impermanence. He said, Impermanence is the most slippery truth we have ever encountered. It goes against everything we think or know about existence. The mind resists impermanence subtly. It slides into the mind easily and slides right out again just as easily without making any impact. And to increase our spiritual development, the perception of impermanence must have an impact. Direct experience of impermanence is the basic truth we need to make ourselves free. Seeing the impermanence of everything awakens the mind to the reality that there is nothing that can stop change. No power, no authority anywhere in the universe can put an end to impermanence. No king, no emperor, nobody with a lot of money can say no more impermanence. You're not going to affect me. No, it's not like that. Impermanence is a universal law which affects everyone's life. So in the Buddhist tradition, this idea, I mean, you know, first it is an idea. We, you know, if you go downtown any place, Fairfax, San Rafael, San Francisco, and ask people on the sidewalk, do things change? What do you think people will say? Do things change? I'll ask you, do things change? Yes. yes, of course they do. We all know this on some level, right? But when it happens to us, or when it is happening in a way that we don't like, or it affects us, causes chaos in our lives, it's harder, isn't it, to accept. It gets very close and personal. And that is hard to bear. It is not easy to open to. 
I teach here at Spirit Rock classes on aging, and aging is one of those uh, changes that we could call unwanted. There are changes that are wanted, you know, we, there's some changes that are, seem like, yay, hooray, finally the flu is gone, or finally I got the promotion, or finally things are looking up. You know, we have changes that are wanted, but then there's these unwanted changes. And certainly aging is one of those, illness is one of those, accidents are one of those. Anyway, in the, in the, uh, when we look at aging, we, we see how personal it gets and how difficult it can be at times to um, open to. I'll read you a poem of um, Billy Collins. It's a poem called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an I, as far as you can recall. Well on your way to oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. When our memory, which is the very foundation of our sense of identity and who we are, begins to be elusive, this is one of those unwanted changes that the Buddha spoke about up close and personal. So how do we practice with that? How do we open to that? How do we see it? How do we view it? Well, one way that is the most common way is to feel somewhat victimized by it. Or what's wrong with me? What, you know, some sense of self-blame or or uh, feeling like, oh, this is not good, I've got to get on top of it, so I'll take, you know, memory lessons, or I'll do one of those games they have online now, or I'll do a lot of crossword puzzles, and that will keep my brain, you know, going. And I mean, this is what old people are having to, to deal with. Now, you young people, you don't realize what we are going through, but you will. It's not like, you know, this... Uh, 
there was a thing in the Chronicle of two young women were overheard on Market Street. One young woman was saying to the other, You know, in this world, there are old people and young people. We just happen to luck out. And when you're young, you kind of feel like that. You know, like, I'll never be old, so I don't have to think about it. Well, you don't have to think about it, but you will get old. If you're lucky, you'll get old. So there is this sense of these unwanted changes that happen in our lives that may feel, as I said, like a mistake or somebody's fault or like we feel victimized by them. Or So in the Buddhist tradition, rather than going to those kinds of uh, reactions or responses, there's, a, there's an encouragement rather to understand impermanence is a universal truth and that it is a reminder that we are mortal here. We are not immortals, that life begins with birth, it ends with death. That's the natural order of things. And it has always been so, and it, it behooves us to keep that in the forefront of our consciousness, not as a morbid thing, but as a thing of like, wow, that is the nature of this reality, that things are constantly changing. We live in a sea of ceaseless change, and the change is not all out there. It's right here. It's right here. It's right here. These bodies are changing. Everything in our experience is changing moment to moment, and when we practice, we see it more closely. We see it and feel it and realize the truth of it in a way that sometimes is even quite startling. I remember when I was practicing intensively and I, I think the first real opening to the truth of impermanence that came to me was, was very powerful. I felt so alive from it though. But all I could say to my teachers who understood because I it, I mean, I just could say, wow, everything's changing. I mean, hello, yes, everything's changing. It's not such a, you, somebody says that, and you say, yeah, of course, everything. But it was really, wow, you know, it was the direct experience that was so, made such a difference. And when we have that direct experience, it changes us. We don't forget. We don't go back to sleep. So at the end of the evening, I want to teach you a chant that is done in the tradition as a way to remember that things are changing constantly. Another poem by Elizabeth Bishop also speaks of this uh, the changing nature of things, and she writes about it because often it's experienced as loss of one kind or another. Change, unwanted change often brings loss. So here is a, this woman, Elizabeth Bishop, writing about that, and you can hear in the poem how she's coming to terms 
with her own losses. She says, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned. I owned two rivers, a continent. I miss them. But it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, like a disaster. And that's, I like that because, you know, when something does change unexpectedly in an unwanted direction, it can feel like a disaster. Like you just have, you know, your, your whole, the ground underneath you is shaking. Or you're, you're, there's a sense of, you know, crisis or chaos or disaster. Oh, this is a disaster. And then somehow life goes on. And you look back on that after some years or weeks or whatever it is. And you see, oh, it's not a disaster. It's loss. And that's part of what we are called to make space for in our lives. That this is part of how it is. Not to be uh, depressed about it or um, it's not a disaster. It's just the way it is. So in the Buddhist time, there was a woman named Padachara who had a very uh, hard time. I'd like to tell you her story. I was, um, there's a book called The Hidden Lamp. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I think it's in the bookstore. The Hidden Lamp is a collection of, of stories of women over the centuries of Buddhist practice. And it's a, it's a series of women's stories about uh, practicing, meeting teachers. They're teaching stories. That's the simplest way to say it. Put together by uh, Sue Moon and Florence Kaplow. And then they asked contemporary women teachers, such as myself, many Zen teachers, other teachers here at Spirit Rock, women teachers, to comment on these stories. So I chose, they asked me, I said, yes, I'd do it. And I chose this story about Padachara to make, to write a commentary on. But let me tell you Padachara's story first, because it's quite a lot about this truth of unwanted change, the truth of loss. 
So here's her story. In a single day, Padachara experienced the deaths of her whole family. In a single day. Her husband was bitten by a poisonous snake. Her newborn child was carried off by a hawk. Her older child drowned in a river, and her brother, mother, and father were killed when their house collapsed. Mad with, gr with grief, mad with grief, she tore off her clothes and wandered naked in circles for a long time until she stumbled into the place where the Buddha was teaching. The monks wanted to send her away, but the Buddha stopped them and said to her, Sister, do not be troubled. You have come to one who is able to be your shelter and refuge. With these words, Patachara began to calm down, and she stayed with the Buddha for several days. And over these days, through different interactions, she saw and heard the teaching of impermanence. She heard from the Buddha these words, It is not only today that you have met with calamity and disaster, but throughout this beginningless round of existence, weeping over the loss of sons and others dear to you, you have shed more tears than the waters of the four oceans. And this is very much the approach of the Buddhist tradition, is just to bring the mind to an awareness that this is a universal law. It happens to everyone and that it is part of what we are called to open to as humans. So Padachara, over some days, saw deeply into the impersonal nature of reality and let go of being shocked and victimized and humiliated. Her trauma opened her up rather than closing her off. And she was able to uh, stay with the Buddha, and she ordained and became one of the first enlightened women who practiced and taught with the Buddha. He said, Padachara, all human beings die. It is better to see the truth of impermanence even for just a moment than to live for a hundred years and not know it. So this was the story that I wrote a commentary on. Quite a, quite a, almost unbelievable. You might think, oh, well, this is just too much, you know. In one day, how could all this happen? But what was interesting for me in, while I was writing this commentary, the very time I was writing the commentary, I happened to see on the nightly news one night the story of a woman Who's, and you, you might remember it when I, when I tell you. She was a woman who had two, three children and her parents staying with her on Christmas Eve in her home in Connecticut. And on Christmas Eve, they all went to bed, and in the middle of the night, the house caught on fire, and they were all burned to death in the fire, except for the woman who managed to escape through the window. Her, day, her name is Madonna Badger. Okay, so that's dramatic enough. Oh my God, here it is. Replay in contemporary times, the same thing. Here's a woman who's completely lost everything. 
Then, when a couple of years later, after I remembered that, I saw an article about the same woman in Vogue magazine. I was in a doctor's office and I saw that she had written an article for Vogue magazine about her life since that horrible trauma that had taken away her three beautiful young children and her parents. She went through hell. She didn't have a spiritual you know, community or teachers or she wasn't a Buddhist or anything. She was put in mental hospitals, she was drugged, she was, you know, just nobody really knew what to do with her because she was so, so grief-stricken and so traumatized. Finally, she found her way to some friends in, I think, in Memphis or someplace like that. And they took her in and they said, you can stay here as long as you promise you won't kill yourself. Because, you know, she was so distraught, that was the worry of all her friends. So she said, okay. So she stayed and lived with them for a couple of years. And during that time, she began to work in an antique store. And there was something about working in a store where there were all these old things. And she began to see pictures of people who had, you know, lived in the last century, in the 1900s, 1800s. She saw pictures of people who had since died, and she began to just take in this awareness of mortality and take in the fact that all these possessions had belonged to people and no longer were part of their this world. She began to slowly open to this understanding of the truth of impermanence, then one Christmas, her, another friend took her to Thailand to an orphanage in Bangkok where they brought toys for the orphans. And she said that was the main turning point for her, was in being with children who had lost their parents and were filled with sorrow, of course, but also so much heartfulness, so much sweetness, so much uh, appreciation for her and what she brought to them, that that, she said, was the beginning of her healing of this trauma, that if these little children could go on and find a, a way to live and, and thrive, that she needed to do the same. And so she began to really recover at that point. So I think it's just very interesting that she found her own way to heal herself from this trauma and uh, go on. Because we think, as the poem says, you know, you think it's a disaster and you'll never recover. And yet, when we are open to the secret teachings, when we are open to seeing. Oh, the other thing that she learned was that it, because people were so stunned by her story and she said she, she really understood that nobody else could help her. 
Nobody else could help her. Therapists, they would hand her books to read. or you know, Nobody really could help her. It was up to her to heal herself. So there was this parallel with the story of Padachara, who had also you know, realized she had to practice to heal herself. So out of this terrible disaster crisis situation, um, these are some stories of people who have found their way through being in touch with the secret teachings, you could say, of impermanence, of that fact that we all are so desperate to avoid or so, uh, so try so hard not to uh, be aware of. Okay, so I want to teach you this um, song of impermanence that is, anicca is the word in, Pali, in the Pali language for impermanence, the, the truth of change. And it's a, a short chant that is chanted every day in the monasteries of Asia as a reminder just to wake up around it, not to be asleep, not to think you are immortal, not to think that you have a good situation, it's going to last forever. Or you have a bad situation, and it's going to last forever. There is no forever here. There is no forever. Sometimes that's good news, sometimes that's bad news. So I will sing this chant once in the Pali language, just so you can hear how it sounds. And then I will chant it in English and invite you to join me. And it's one you can learn here tonight. You can sing it in the shower every morning if you want. Okay. Anicca vata sankara upada vayadamino upakituva nirujanti Desang wupasamo suko. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Please join me. All things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. All things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Once more. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That means well done, well done, well done. Can you sing it once more in Pali? Anicca vata sankara 
Upadawaya damino, Upakituwa nirujanti, Desang wupasamo suko. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. We probably don't think like that, but that's what it's telling us. Better to be in harmony with this truth than in contention with it. So we have a few minutes if anybody has any comments or questions. I hope it didn't scare you. (laughs) Any thoughts? Yeah. When people um, uh, in my age group, in their early 70s, began to look at the, the, the past is past, the future is yet unknown, and we have the present moment, and we see the changes before in our bodies, one way or another. Um, some of them we are. Some of them are easier to embrace than others. Yes, I know that. <laughs> Eyesight that used to be clear is now not as clear, and other other changes. So, how in moments of stress or moments of introspection do you embrace those changes? I don't have a choice. <laughs> There's choiceless change. What are you going to do? Uh, you know, it's like you don't, if you're in a river and the current's flowing, you best flow with the current. You don't fight, you know, try to resist it. But there are certainly ways of working with the mind when you see this um, aversion come up in the mind or resistance come up in the mind. Um, I find that the present is such a beautiful resource because there's always more going on in the present than one thing. So if there's something I don't like, I can always say to myself, what else is here? In fact, I would recommend this as a practice to all of you, whatever your age. When you're dealing with something, ah, what else is here? What else is here? Look around. Maybe a bird is flying by. Maybe the sun is shining. Maybe the flowers are blooming. Maybe you're so grateful for your heart beating or your sense of aliveness of being. Whatever it is, there's always something else. And we can practice training our attention to notice what else is here. There's always something. But you need to, you know, remind yourself. We get so focused on one particular bad thing. What else is here? Does that speak to what you're... Yeah. The other part unsaid was that I was wondering was that in a culture, in a Western culture that's so youth-oriented, 
um, the passage of time is is difficult, I think, for many people to understand that um, our music, much of our music, not, not necessarily the classical music, but much of the music speaks to people who are 50 and younger. are or whatever periodically um, it's just an interesting observation to uh, my husband's family are from Italy and uh, he's from Italy and he has a completely different perspective on aging yes than uh, American culture yeah so this is why I'm teaching classes on aging so we can get together and begin to uh, redefine re what this stage of life is about because nobody else is going to do it for us. We have, to, we have to look and find out for ourselves what this stage of life is about and not take on the negative stereotyping. And there's a lot of, uh, that's what's so great about getting together the way we do and we practice together and we inquire together and we are creating a new paradigm. And mindfulness is your best anti-aging drug of all time. It, 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 it helps everything. Mindfulness, and this is for young people, old people, sick people, whatever kind of person you are, dying people. Mindfulness, it, it, it is. It's like a wonder drug. They're finding out this simple practice of sitting down and being present with your present experience has wonderful effects on the functioning of the body. The cellular functioning of the body is changed by this practice. The brain is changed in all of its functioning by mindfulness practice. Isn't that wonderful to know? So a lot of the, the stereotyping of age is a, they haven't studied people who've been practicing. They've only studied people who, who have never practiced. So we don't even know what's possible, is my view. That's my little bit. Yes? Can you just repeat the two poems that the authors in the poem titles? That yes. Elizabeth Bishop, um, One Art, it's called One Art. And then the other poem is <laughs> Billy Collins, Forgetfulness. Yeah, right. Don't I'm... forget it, that's what I'm writing. <laughs> I saw a hand over here. Um, yeah. Um, I'm um, just kind of amazed at being my age, I don't feel old inside. That's right. And it's just amazing to me that I never thought, you know, when I was 20, that the old people were still, you know, 18 inside. Yes, isn't that a discovery? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I say, when I close my eyes, I don't find age. I mean, when I look in the mirror, I find age. But when I close my eyes and look inside, the breath doesn't seem to have a particular number attached to it, nor does it, my, this, any of my experience have age in it. 
It's just, well, the way it's always been. There's a lovely, a sense of aliveness here. We're alive. Fantastic. Maybe in the next 30 seconds I'll be dead, but right now I'm alive. <laughs> and that's the way it is. Anyone else? Yes. I want to offer the woman who's in the 70s that you, you spoke of about the generations and appreciation for elders. My father is 100. Yeah. And he, he has people lining. Yeah, I like that because I'm finding that too. It's a surprise to me when I meet young people who would say, I want to know you, I want to hear more. I'd like, to, you know, what, what's, what's going on? You know, it's, it's, I wasn't expecting that, but I find that happening yeah. spontaneously. And I also find there's a conversation wanting to happen among older people and between older people and younger people. It's wanting to happen. So that's what I'm about here at Spirit Rock. That's what I'm doing. It's my mission is to get that going. Yeah. I, I kind of had the same uh, feeling. My mother is um, closing in on 94. She's been bowling 75 years. She still wins. She still wins. She still Way to go. Thank you. Yes. Uh, we have a young female looking for a ride to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> so no, 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 only old females. Forget it. Um, Can anyone offer a ride to San Francisco? Yes. Great. Good. Thank you. All right, let's end here. And thank you all so much for coming tonight and supporting Spirit Rock and all of us teachers. And it's just a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.